Who's ready for some snow this evening? My poor in-laws just came from snow in western New Mexico to our cold weather, so can't get away even on vacation. Well, <laughs> yeah, nice and cold. Um, yeah, so I, growing up in western New Mexico, I've actually seen snow in June. I know that Idlewild has occasionally gotten that. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, but growing up, you know, uh, in the woods, uh, my parents had three acres of land, and it got lots of snow, sometimes up to your knees. And uh, my big thing in high school, after coming home from football practice, was to get a big roaring fire going. Um, my parents could care less. They were just going to run the propane. But I was a little bit of a pyromaniac. <laughs> May have burnt a few holes in my mom's couch. Um <laughs> And I'm sure she'll never let me live that down. But um, I love tending the fire. And as all of you up here know, because you're all fire building experts, um, as you tend your fire, you want to keep your coals together if you want to keep it nice and warm. If you let your coals tumble away, they tend to die off. When coals become lone rangers, they lose their heat, they lose their flame, and they burn out. Too often in our Christian lives, we can see ourselves as lone rangers, setting out on the path of faith, relying on ourselves with our Bible tucked under our arms, in our, in our evangelical churches, we stress the importance of our personal walk with Christ. But we don't often talk enough about why we need each other. We could act as if Jesus came to reconcile us as individuals alone and forget that he died to bring us into one body together. So we skip out on youth group. We don't go to Bible studies. We don't attend life groups. We drift from church altogether, or we hardly stay around after church to get to know people. Today, we are going to talk about why we need each other as a church for our spiritual lives. And we will do so by looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Now, this is a little bit of a break from our First Peter study, since Tim is not feeling so well today, but it's going to fall right in line with what we were talking about last week, with how the Lord has equipped us to serve each other. So in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, first we're going to see the importance of pursuing unity through selfless love, unity through selfless love. And secondly, we will see how each of us are equipped to serve each other as we grow together. And finally, we will discuss how we can put this into practice. So first off, selfless love. In the previous sections of Ephesians, Paul has prayed that these Ephesian believers, these believers in Ephesus, would become more and more like Christ and in doing so, that they would glorify God with their lives. And so in chapter 4, he goes on to exhort them and to encourage them, saying, I therefore, a prisoner 
for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now this section starts with the word, therefore, and we know that that means that it's pointing back to Paul's prayer that God would be glorified in them, the church. So Paul is encouraging these believers, these believers in Ephesus, that since God is glorified in their church, in the church, their Christian lives should show off their relationship with God. Our Christian lives should show off our relationship with God. So if we have a saving relationship with him, what should our lives look like? What should they reveal to those around us? Well, Paul lists three qualities that should be revealed from our relationship with God. He tells us that uh, they are humility, gentleness, and patience. And he tells us that we show these by bearing with one another. Or I like how the Lexham Bible translates it. It's much better thought-for-thought translation. By putting up with each other in love. Putting up with each other in love. Is dealing with each other's shortcomings and giving up our own ways and rights for the betterment of each other. Our selfishness, our self-interest, if we allow it to keep us from humility and gentleness and patience, it'll get in the way of our unity. We will not be unified together. And we will destroy any unity we have through our selfish division. But when we bear with each other in love, when we put up with each other in love, we will strengthen our unity, a unity of peace. Now, as one commentator puts it, uh, summarizing this thought for us, the unity of the church is preserved by loving interpersonal relationships and interactions that are characterized by selflessness. Loving interpersonal relationships and interactions. This is just hanging out, talking with each other that are characterized by selflessness. This selfless unity is God's design and desire for his people. And Paul shows us throughout verses 4 through 6 that we are spiritually united through the work of God. We are bound up in one body, the church, through one spirit, called to one hope, having one Lord, and sharing one faith and one baptism. You could hear that sound of unity ringing throughout what he's saying. We have one heavenly father who is over all things. 
Our spiritual unity is a reality. And we are supposed to live with each other in a way that shows the evidence that we truly are one, that we are united. And we do that by selflessly loving each other. We all fail at this from time to time. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying. We should seek to live that spiritual reality out, waiting for the day when Christ returns and we no longer are tempted by selfishness that causes division. So it's a spiritual reality and something that we need to try to live in practice too. While Paul is discussing our unity, another question comes up. What is the purpose of diversity in the church? After all, while we might have unity, we are all not like each other. And thank goodness, I think you could all only handle one of me running around here. And I honestly could only handle one of each of you. No offense, but I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. We're different from each other. And uh, having too many of the same thing would get frustrating. Now in verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each member of the body, each member of the church has been given gifts of grace. Gifts of grace, or as Paul calls them in other places, spiritual gifts. And Christ measures those gifts out to each of us specifically. Just like a parent buys specific gifts for their children at Christmas time. You don't have, you know, that parent who just says, well, you're all getting sock puppets this Christmas. You tailor it to the kid. In the same way, Christ gives us each special Get a, a mix of gifts according to what we need to serve each other. Now, Paul goes on in the next verse to quote Psalm 68, um, 18. And he says in verse 8 of our, of our book, Therefore it, the psalm, Psalm 68 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of, captain, of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So this is a bit of an odd turn in what Paul is saying, but I think we can make sense of it. We could track with what he's trying to say. It seems that Paul is applying this psalm to Christ to describe his earthly ministry as the victory of a warrior. The victory of a warrior. Christ descended, coming into the world and facing death on our behalf, his enemy. And he rose again, ascending to the Father's right hand as a victorious warrior. You could picture it. Picture a warrior king going off into a foreign land, vanquishing his enemy, then returning to his own kingdom and having all these treasures, these things that he's won in battle, and he gives them out as gifts to the people of his land. That's what Paul is saying Christ has done for us. 
Jesus Christ is victorious over darkness, death, and evil through his resurrection. And so we share in the spoils, the treasures of his victory. And he gives them to us, these grace gifts, also called spiritual gifts, that are given out to each of us. If you look at verse 10, Paul says that Christ ascended that he might fill all things. Now in Ephesians, it's really interesting. Paul repeatedly brings up this cosmic view of salvation that might seem a little weird to us because we don't often talk about it. That is, he just doesn't talk about individual personal salvation, just your soul, but he also talks about the fact that God wants to redeem all of creation. He wants to bring heaven to earth. Um, That is something that we should all look forward to. That this world with all its problems will be made right again. And that is God's plan for saving all of his creation. But for now, we live in a broken world. And the story of salvation will not be finished until everything is made right. The world is put back to the way it's supposed to be. There is no more death and disease and war or hate when all things are finally under Jesus Christ, when he fills all things, as Paul is saying here. Until then, it is our mission as his church, as his body, to bring him and the gospel message to all things in this world, preaching the gospel to all peoples, loving all and practicing reconciliation with all people. And we, as his church, as members of his body, have a role in this cosmic plan of salvation. And he has equipped us all with grace gifts to carry out this grand task. And Paul begins to explain how this all plays out in the next verses. Verse 11 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ, the head of the church, has given us a group of people, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. They all have one thing in common. They all fulfill some type of teaching role for the church, He's given us these teaching people in our churches to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is to equip each member of the church for service. Each member for doing ministry. To summarize the process, we can picture it this way. The head gives teachers to prepare the saints for doing ministry with the goal of building up the body into maturity. Notice that it isn't just the teachers or pastors who build up the body. It is everyone building each other up into mature Christ-likeness. 
Now, we often think of pastors and teachers as people who do the ministry. And often we treat church as a place where we could come to receive, to have the pastors and teachers minister to us. Now, for my first two years of college, I didn't get too involved in my church in Chicago. I had left Gallup where I had experienced amazing fellowship at church and found myself lost in a very busy life, attending church on Sunday, but not sticking around, not building relationships with anyone. And I quickly began to feel an emptiness, that I was missing something. I had mostly been attending Moody Church where I got to sit under the amazing teaching of Pastor Erwin Lutzer, being fed and receiving constantly. But I was missing something. Pastor Lutzer was there to equip me to minister to the church, not just to have myself fed, but then to in turn feed others, to give back. Christ gives his church teaching leaders who will train and get all of us, all of us, the people in the seats ready to minister and build each other up. The leaders aren't the ones who do the work alone. They prepare the rest of the church to work. And that, let's remember what Paul was saying in verse 7. Each of us has been given grace gifts. These gifts are to be used to build each other up into maturity. If the body of the church needs to be built up, all parts, each muscle has to join together in strength training and exercise. Now, if you look at an Olympic athlete, you're not going to find one of them who has one really strong muscle and the rest of them just weak. You're not going to get an Olympic gymnast who just has one giant bicep or just, you know, worked out calves and a flabby stomach. You're going to have an athlete who works to make sure that every muscle is working together. As we, the muscles and the ligaments work together so that an athlete can bring them all into full de development for their whole body, making the entire body ready to compete. As we all equip and work and build together as the body of Christ, we are to pursue one goal, well-rounded maturity together, not just individually, reaching together for unity of the faith and knowledge and maturity and the stature of Christ, as Paul says. Verse 13 shows us that there are two key parts to maturity. If we want to break down what maturity looks like. First, attaining unity of the faith. That is correct biblical teaching. Not confused by false teachings or heresies. This isn't to say that we all agree on every single doctrinal point. I've never met two pastors who agree on every single thing. But that we are bound together by agreement on the essential doctrines of the faith. The essential doctrines of the faith. Having personal, and the second, so that's the first, unity of the faith. And then the second would be having personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowing him together. So there are two components to maturity. 
right doctrine and right relationship. Right doctrine and right relationship. And the two should always go together. You get in trouble when you separate the two. Both are important. Now, we are already united in Christ spiritually, as we have said, but we need to work that faith out, finding unity in holding to right doctrine and right relationship with Christ that leads to Christ-likeness. Now, Paul continues in verse 14 saying, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, both of our elements there, truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul is saying that we, as we become mature, when we are united together in right doctrine and right relationship with Christ, we are no longer deceived by false and tricky teachers. Throughout history, you haven't had to look very far to run into false teachings. People who claim Christ didn't rise again, that he wasn't fully God, people who deny the Trinity or deny the resurrection or deny that Christ is returning, and they are out there. And today they are often just a remote control click or mouse click away. Lurking around our, sorry, whoa. They're lurking around our cable TV channels and running rampant through Google searches. If we don't continue growing together, we will be deceived. Whipped back and forth like a broken raft in a storm. Not knowing sound biblical doctrine leaves us fragile and ready to fall victim to false teaching. And being consistently deceived threatens our growth. We cannot reach Christ-like maturity if false teaching is constantly getting in the way. This is a large part of why we need teachers who are pursuing growth in Scripture who are learning to know God more and more so that the rest of us won't be led astray. Instead of being led astray by every false teaching, Paul says that we are supposed to become Christ-like. And we do this by speaking the truth in love. As we speak the truth in love, as we use our grace gifts, we all grow together. This starts by building selfless, loving relationships with each other at church. We often talk about personal, private growth as if personal devotional time is enough. Some people think that all you need is your Bible and yourself. No church necessary. I could do my devotional time, hang out with Jesus, and everything will be fine. Often we are tempted to think that the church is just about showing up, hanging out, getting the pastor to run the show and encourage us, and then we head home. 
heading out the door with no thought of what our role is helping others grow. Instead, instead of that selfish, private, personal approach to our spiritual lives, in selfless love, we must use our grace gifts to serve each other, to build up the body into mature Christ-likeness. In selfless love, we have to use our grace gifts to serve each other so that we can build up the body into mature Christ-likeness. The Bible doesn't emphasize spiritual growth for persons by themselves. Personal devotional times are good. I'm not saying don't do those. Those are good, but they are not enough. We need each other if we want to become more like Christ. We all have a part to play, and Christ has given each of us unique grace gifts. If one muscle or tendon of a body doesn't do its part, growing in strength becomes difficult. Any of you who have ever had a problem with a certain joint or ligament or muscle know that it affects the rest of you too. Each of us have been equipped by God to help each other grow in maturity. So far today we've seen first that in light of our salvation, we need to pursue unity in selfless love. And second, that we are to use our unique grace gifts to help each other grow. Now, I want to take a moment before we wrap up to consider how we can apply this to our lives today. First, I'd say that this isn't just your pastor's job to build up the church. All of us do that. Every member. Second, filling a seat on Sunday and leaving isn't enough. If if there is going to be growth, if people are going to grow in a church, you have to participate with the church. Third, participating means showing up, but also getting to know people. We all need to work hard to talk with each other and fellowship more. And there are many opportunities. There's life groups. There's opportunities to lead if you apply. There's there's fellowship events. There's a plenty to do to get involved. Now, I'd also say don't become isolated. Get to know people outside of your age group, outside of your, your demographics. Make sure that you're getting to know the entire body. It's easy to become isolated. Youth hanging out with youth. Young adults hanging out with young adults. Parents hanging out with parents. Seniors hanging out with seniors. But we all need each other if we want to grow. Don't become isolated. Get to know each other from different groups and backgrounds. Fourth, to serve each other with grace gifts, you need to invest in each other, whether you know what your gifts are or not. You don't have to know what your spiritual gift is to use it. Now, it could be helpful if you know what it is so you could develop it intentionally. But you don't know, even if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you at least have one. Every believer has one, even if they don't know what it is. Now, many people like to use quizzes to determine their spiritual gifts. But 
just to be careful here, sometimes those can be inaccurate. I used to think that I couldn't teach and preach at all. And my quizzes, when I would take them, would just reflect what I thought. And I came to learn as I got into situations where I had to start teaching and preaching that I did have those gifts. Don't assume that because a quiz says you don't have a gift, that means you don't have any gifts. Now, I'd say the best way, even better than taking a quiz, to find out what your gift is, is to build relationships in a church and get active. Do something. Investing in relationships and serving. And then as you do that, you ask the people who are closest to you what they believe your gifts are. Now, be ready. Sometimes they might tell you that you aren't gifted in something. but they might be able to pinpoint what you actually are gifted for. And that could be a huge blessing because sometimes they could see it better than you can. If you invest in the lives of others, if you take time to speak the truth in love frequently with each other, we will all begin to discover what gift Christ has graciously equipped us with. Now, today we've looked at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've seen that we need to pursue unity through selfless love, and that we are to use our grace gifts to help each other grow. Now, as we wrap up, I want to encourage you every single one of you is unique. Every single one of you is unique. And if we want to grow as a church, if we want to become more united and more like Christ, we need each other. You are needed. As we've looked at this passage, we've seen that we are to pursue unity and selfish love. And we've been challenged to use our grace gifts to serve each other, to build up the body and to mature Christ-likeness. That starts right here, right now making sure you're building those selfless interpersonal relationships, finding those small times to interact and encourage one another. Let's pray and do that.